This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. Well, good morning, everyone. I was our final episode in um, our box set series, Who is Jesus? I have to say, I've really loved this box set. I hope you have too. And if you've missed any of the episodes, you can listen to them all on our podcast or on our website. You're very welcome to do that. If, you, if you're not familiar with our podcast, do go and have a look, especially if you're, if you're intermittent here on a Sunday. And we've always said that Sunday services are part of our rhythms of church. There's lots of other rhythms that people participate in. And one of those rhythms is just connecting with our podcasting. And uh, it's, there's a pattern to it. There's a rhythm to it. There's a direction to it. So if you haven't yet signed up for our podcast where you get your podcast from, would encourage you to do that. If you're not into podcasts, again, I would encourage you to do it. There's some amazing content out there on podcasting. And uh, we, uh, we think it's an important part of one of the rhythms of our church uh, as we connect together. Um, most of our podcasting is relating to the Bible and our understanding of the Bible. So, as I say, you can listen to all of these uh, talks and watch them all on YouTube as well. Now, uh, on this final episode, um, we're going we're gonna to talk about the return of Jesus. And I, I want to talk, first of all, just about my dad. My dad died three years ago. And last Monday, it w- would have been his 77th birthday. Uh, this is him here. Jeff, he's called. And, uh, yeah, that's a... I think that's a walk we went on a winter in Alderley Edge in Cheshire. They, they, my mum still lives up there in Cheshire. Dad uh, uh, moved up there for his job with ICI. They used to be, they used to live in Portsmouth when they first got married. He was a, in a naval architect's office. So yeah, that's my dad. And uh, he died three years ago. Um, and um, you know, uh, last Monday when we celebrated his birthday on WhatsApp as a family, we kind of shared messages of happy birthday, dad. And some of them were about him and some of them were to him. And I think there is a sense when we lose a loved one, we, we often talk to them, don't we, as well. And we, we, we think of them with affection and love, expecting them to be somewhere where they may even be listening to us, they may even be observing us. And all of you uh, will probably have suffered the grief of losing a loved one and you're probably thinking about that person right now. And uh, yeah, I think it's important as we, as we reflect that we do embrace that and we consider what is happening to them now. Mark, could you, um, Stephen, could you take the ring off my microphone? Would that be all right? Just take the microphone down a little bit. So maybe you're, you're the same. Maybe you've lost someone you love. Uh, maybe you're remembering them in the same way. And of course, this hope and expectation of life beyond death is, is a, common, a common desire and a common dream of all people, like throughout the human race. And different cultures have developed different stories about how we expect to live beyond death and what that looks like. And uh, of course, in the Christian belief system, the idea of life beyond death is based on the resurrection and the return of Jesus. And that's what we're going to look at for our final episode of um, Who is Jesus, which we based on Mark's gospel. Um, the expectation of the second coming of Jesus is central to the New Testament. But what do we mean when we talk about the return of Jesus? What does the return of Jesus mean? And that's the question I'm asking this morning. That's the question we're going to dig into the Bible to try and find out the answers to. So, What does it mean to say that Jesus will return? Well, as I said, it's very central to the New Testament. 21 of the 27 letters and accounts of Jesus' gospel. Okay, so if you're not familiar with the New Testament, the New Testament is made up of four gospels, what we call the gospels 
of Jesus according to four different people, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And then there's some letters, you'll know about that. There's, an, there's a sort of second volume of Luke, which we call Acts. Then there's the letters of Paul and Peter and John and all of these different people. And then there's, there's what we call Revelation, which kind of basically rounds off the New Testament, which is actually a letter as well. But it's written with real apocalyptic kind of vivid imagery, which makes it difficult to kind of read as a letter, but it nevertheless it is a letter as well. And uh, 21 of the 27 letters and accounts of Jesus' life refer to Jesus' return. So it must be pretty important, right? It must be pretty central to what the New Testament is about. Now, if you're familiar with the way in which the New Testament has come about, um, it was written not very long after the events. Now, in our sort of Instagram, Twitter, day and age, uh, where like, you're probably, you could be writing something right now about something that is happening right now, and in a moment it will be history. Uh, events were written down a long time after they actually happened. And in fact, although the time periods uh, within the New Testament seem like they're a long time, they're actually very short in terms of historical evidence. Um, things that you, t- you and I take for granted um, have do- are documented years, if not decades, after they happened. In this case, the earliest uh, writing that we, uh, that we read in the New Testament is actually 1 Thessalonians. So 1 Thessalonians, the first document that we have record of, it's, it's considered to be the earliest writing that we have in the New Testament. And it was written about 15 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And it's written by a guy called Paul. Um, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 17, he says this, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to God's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the time of the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so that we will be with the Lord forever. So, let me say first thing, Paul is writing to comfort those whose relatives and friends have died, and he suggests that the dead will be resurrected and return with Jesus, and then those who are still alive, and Paul includes himself in that, um, will be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the returning Jesus and the resurrected dead in the air. Now, I propose to you that I find it hard to read that without laughing. Is anyone else? Let's be honest. Okay, let's not over-sentimentalise this. When I was a kid, uh, we lived opposite fields, and I have this recurring memory of thinking that when people died, they grew wings and flew up into the sky. And, um, and honestly, when I think about that now, I laugh. I mean, it's, what a ridiculous image. I mean, am I the only person in the room that thinks that's a ridiculous image? Come on, be honest. Some of you are too scared to say it because it's in the Bible, so therefore it must be the Word of God and, and we've got to respect it. Yeah, you're right, we do need to respect it, but we need to understand the context in which it's written. Okay, and uh, so I find it hard to, to read that without laughing, not because I have no respect for Paul, but because it sounds ridiculous. What Paul possibly is referring to here is um, in, his, uh, in the account of Luke, uh, Jesus, in, I told you that second volume, it's called Acts. So volume one is Luke and then volume two is Acts. In Acts, Luke records uh, Jesus uh, floating up into the sky and then is hidden by a cloud as he's watched by the disciples. 
Okay, that's literally what it says. And I referred to this a few weeks back uh, when we talked about the ascension. It seems ridiculous. It seems bizarre, let's be honest, and it, and it challenges credulity. In reality, scholars think that Paul is drawing on Jewish metaphors from the book of Daniel. Now, if you've ever read the book of Daniel, if you haven't read the book of Daniel, um, we're going to be doing a, a box set series over the next three months. I'm not going to be partaking in it, but a bo- brilliant box set series on Old Testament people and how they encountered God. And someone's going to be doing Daniel. I think it might be Byrne, actually. And uh, it's just the most bizarre book. It's, I mean, it's so bizarre. You're going, to find, you're going to struggle to read it without going, what on earth is going on here? You've got to understand the context. So what we have is, is Paul uh, drawing on Jewish metaphors from the book of Daniel. And, and honestly, Paul is straining at the borders of language. He's piling metaphor on metaphor to describe something that he can't fully describe. Isn't that nice to know that Paul can't describe it? because it's so complex and weird and beyond our realm of understanding. So he just uses metaphor after metaphor after metaphor to describe what he thinks resurrection and the return of Jesus will look like. Um, and don't just take my word for it. The respected New Testament scholar N.T. Wright argues that um, the ascension of Jesus into the clouds and the return of Jesus, as Paul's just said, from the clouds, and everyone else will be caught up and rise up in the sky to meet Jesus in the clouds, Okay, he says, he says this is a metaphor signifying Jesus' power and authority rather than actual reality. Now, you can disagree with him, although you'll find it hard to come across a New Testament scholar that's better than him. Um, and you can disagree with me. But as far as N.T. Wright's concerned, and I am, that what Paul's using here is a metaphor to try and describe something which is really complex. But whether we choose to take Paul's description literally or metaphorically, The description highlights the struggle that biblical scholars face when dealing with the return of Jesus and the idea of life beyond death. Uh, To quote N.T. Wright again, N.T. Wright says that um, biblical language describing God's future is a set of signposts pointing into the mist. Like, it's pointing into the mist. You're kind of just going to be groping your way forwards. And that's what I feel like I'm doing. And surely that's what Paul is struggling to do here, as he does do throughout his letters. Struggling to find words to describe what life beyond death looks like. And I would beg all of you to ask yourself the same question. Is that not true of us as well? We're like struggling, struggling in the mist. But one thing that we can conclude from Paul's letter to the Thessalonians is that he, respect, he expected Jesus to return in his lifetime. which kind of explains some of Paul's advice in his letters, where he's really, not, he's really not concerned with what's going on in the present. He's only interested in Jesus' return. He's like, just get ready for Jesus' return. Don't get married. <laughs> Why bother getting married? Jesus is going to return. Do you get my gif? Those of you that know your letters of Paul, like, he says some bizarre things. Partly, they sound bizarre because he's living in reality where he expects Jesus to return within his lifetime. And that's why he sounds quite bizarre when he talks about big social issues like slavery and, and uh, the role of women and uh, uh, marriage and, and all sorts of practical issues that people who uh, he was in relationship were facing. Um, now, scholars think that Paul died sometime between 64 and 67 AD, which is about 34 years after Jesus died. And, um, and that's quite a short period of time, isn't it? 34 years. I don't know about you, when I was... Um, I don't know how old it was, back in 2005, I remember Jacques Rogge saying, 
the uh, 2012 Olympics will be awarded to London. That's what he said. I just remember him pronouncing it London. And uh, I was thrilled. Anybody else thrilled about that? Can anybody else remember that? Some of you can, right? Uh, Claire and I were like, oh, we should do physio at the Olympics. It'll be great. We'll, we're, we're so excited. It's coming to London. This is cool. And, um, and I remember thinking in 2005, that's seven years is a long time to wait for something that I'm really excited about. Um, when I was 18, I honestly thought like, getting to 25 was a, was a lifetime away. I was excited about getting to 25, but I just felt like years away. Anybody else 18 and kind of thinking 25 feels like a long way away? Yeah, it does. It feels like it right now to you. It did to me because our perception of time into the future is quite, is, is weird, frankly. Um, I'm, I'm a bit of a train geek and an aeroplane geek and things like that. So for me, I'm quite excited about HS2 being built between Manchester and London. But I'm rather sad that it won't be running until 20... Uh, well, 28 years from now, 2042. I'll be 69 before I can get to Manchester from London in an hour on a high-speed train. I mean, that just shows you how ridiculous our engineering systems are in Britain. But nevertheless, I'm kind of disappointed by that because I'm thinking, 69? I can't imagine being 69, but you know, some of you that are 69 know that actually it's going to go quite quick, which, which, you know, is a reminder to us all to kind of value everything, every moment we have, right? To, have, to value every hour we have and don't waste it. But the reality is it's quite difficult to imagine time in the future. And I'm thinking about Paul here, and Paul is thinking to himself, I think Jesus is going to return before I die. And he can't quite grasp what that's going to feel like and look like, but he thinks Jesus is going to return before he dies. And I think, I think Paul felt about Jesus returning um, in a similar way to the, like how we feel about things that we want to happen in our lifetime. Think about something you want to happen in your lifetime, that you want to see. Maybe uh, you've got children and they get married and you, you want to see them have grandchildren. Um, maybe you've got a career aspiration and, and you, at some point in the future you're like, I want to see that happen. I want to get there. Some of you are like, I want to live to see Bristol City reach the Premier League. I just want to see my football team start playing competitive football again. But nevertheless, um, I think Paul was a bit like that. Uh, Paul has given his life to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. Okay, he's getting beaten up routinely. He's getting attacked, vilified. Okay, and Paul, the, the essence of Paul's message is this. Jesus Christ has died, has been resurrected, and is going to return again. That's the essence of Paul's message. And Paul's suffering for the gospel is well documented in his letters. He's not shy about telling us how much he's suffering. Don't you think Paul wants Jesus to return so that he can be vindicated? I mean, for some of us, kind of, the idea of Paul, Paul's quite, I think Paul would be quite an uncomfortable person to be with. I'm not sure I'd quite enjoy knowing Paul, to be honest with you. I think he'd just be tiring. It's like, shut up. You just keep going on about Jesus. Like, it's it's just stop it. Like, I can't sit down and have a coffee with you without you talking about it. I think Paul would be an irritating person to know. But face it, Paul wanted to be vindicated. He wanted to be vindicated. Jesus is going to return and he's going to vindicate my message to all of you who mock me for for preaching it. I think Paul wanted to be vindicated. And he expects Jesus to return. Now, he wasn't the only person. 
This belief that Jesus was going to return was common amongst all the followers of Jesus. Fifteen years after Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, his friend and associate, Mark, wrote what we call the Gospel of Jesus, according to Mark. It's what we've been studying in this box set. And I've said before that scholars think that Mark recorded uh, Peter's experience of Jesus because Peter like, gave him a first-hand account. That's why we rely, that's why traditionally the reputation of Mark is very high amongst the accuracy um, and, and, if you like, the, the, kind of the, the, the truth of, of the reality of Jesus. Mark's gospel is hugely respected, not just by theologians, but by historians, all right, the world over. And, and Mark was an associate of Peter, but he was also an associate of Paul. He hung out with Paul. Um, and scholars think that Mark's gospel was written sometime between 55 AD and 65 AD, maybe even 70 AD. And so Mark and Paul and Peter, they were all talking the same language. They were all expecting the same things. So what we read in Mark is a similar account of, um, of this expectation. Now, what we should understand is, is that um, when we read this, we are reading here what Mark understood. We're not just reading a sort of blow-by-blow account. We're reading Mark's interpretation of it. Just like when we read Paul's letters, we're reading Paul's interpretation of it. We need to read it through the person that wrote it. So Mark was one of Paul's peers, but actually, Mark was actually would have been a teenager when Jesus was around. Okay, and there's a, there's, there's a story of a teenager running away at the time that Peter... Um, betrayed Jesus and this Mark includes this story of this man this young man running away uh, he's half dressed um, and it's a bit of a bizarre kind of little addition to it and, and most scholars think that that's Mark writing about himself there so he would have been a young teenager at the time of Jesus and he would have witnessed the, 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 the crucifixion and the resurrection this is Mark 13 verses 1 to 4 As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what massive, magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, Jesus replied? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. It's quite a thing to say, isn't it? It's a bit like like looking at the shard and saying, yes, that's a magnificent building. And, you know, there will come a time when not not one pane of glass will remain unbroken. Not one stone will be left standing on top of the other. That's what Jesus is saying here. It would have been of that scale. And Jesus, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? Now Jesus then uses really scary prophetic language to answer that question. He warns them of wars and earthquakes and famines that he describes are like the pain associated with childbirth. Uh, All of us men don't know what that means. Uh, so uh, huge respect to all of you women that go through this. But as I understand it, it's very painful before you give birth. True? Right. And that's what Jesus says. He says it's going to be really painful before, before what? Well, before I return is what he says. But let's talk more about that in a moment. The images he describes are terrible. He warns his disciples that they're going to be arrested, they're going to be flogged, that families will be torn apart, and everyone will flee Jerusalem and there will be darkness, which is a metaphor in Jewish culture for an absence of God. Not a pretty picture. Now, as with all prophecy, what tends to happen with prophecy, and that's true of what we do here as well, is that it tends to be, tends to be about actual reality, but also a kind of reality beyond our reality. So you, with prophecy, you get 
observable events, and metaphoric language. Um, and in this case, scholars recognize that Jesus is prophesying, by the way, we're reviewing this retrospectively, so it's easy to say this, but scholars think that Jesus was prophesying about the fall of Jerusalem, because in AD 70, um, I won't go into detail because there's a lot more history to it than just the Roman army, let's just say that the Roman army sacked Jerusalem, destroyed the temple and sacked Jerusalem. Okay, and it's a massive event in Jewish history. It's actually, arguably, historians, I was listening to a history podcast the other day, it's actually arguably one of the most significant historical events in Western society. But that's another, that's another talk. The reality is, is that actually, Jesus had been talking and warning his fellow Judeans, listen, if you're going to rebel against Rome, it's only going to end in one way. Utter destruction of Jerusalem. And you'll see him warning. If you read the Council of Jesus' life, you'll see Jesus warning his fellow Judeans, don't, don't do it, don't provoke the Romans, because they'll destroy it. And indeed they do. Here, Jesus is prophesying, as, and in AD 70, the Romans destroy Jerusalem. But Mark also sees a double meaning in Jesus' prophecy. That includes Jesus using metaphorical language to talk about his own return. Because if you fast forward in Mark 13 to verse 26, it says, at that time, people will see the Son of Man. That's his favorite term for himself. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather the elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now, learn this lesson from the fig tree. If you remember, there's this famous story of Jesus cursing a fig tree. And the next day, it's dead. And he's cursing it because there's no fruit on it. Which sounds really precocious of Jesus. I mean, you know, you know, walk up to an apple tree and there's no apples on it, so he curses it because he wants an apple, and then the next day the apple tree's dead. That's literally what happens. Um, now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, know that the summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until these things have happened. Now, Jesus could be referring to Jerusalem falling. Okay, so it's really, really understandable that he could be referring to, Jesus, to the Jerusalem falling. And we know that Mark possibly wrote this after Jerusalem had fallen. So Mark, again, is writing retrospectively, ah, Jesus prophesied this and here's the fulfillment of it. But... It does appear that Mark expects Jesus to return and therefore includes those words. So we've got Paul, we've got Mark. What about the book of Revelation? The author of Revelation is a guy called John, not to be confused with the same guy that wrote the, the Gospel of John, but John, someone that scholars call John the Seer or John the Prophet. And the author of Revelation also expected Jesus to return in his lifetime. We think that um, the Revelation was written in 96 AD, so sort of about 26 years after the fall of Jerusalem. And it's a letter written to seven churches in the area that we now call Turkey, okay? And um, it's a particular area of Turkey as well, central Turkey. And it uses symbolic language to describe the destruction of the Roman Empire and the return of Jesus Christ. And it's really important. These people, these people were being persecuted. The Jews were being persecuted. The Christians were being persecuted by the Roman Empire because they wouldn't bow down to the Roman gods. And they wouldn't play ball and they wouldn't observe Roman law. So they were getting persecuted by the Romans. So they're living under persecution. I mean, real persecution. The sort of persecution that, you know, the oppression and the hardship that people are suffering, you know, in Ukraine and perhaps even in Russia, the centers in Russia at the moment, they're being put down, they're being crushed. And this is what was happening there. And John the Seer 
writes this prophecy against the Roman Empire. But he also, he also talks about the return of Jesus in this context as well. And um, there's this apocalyptic language which describes the supernatural powers that the author believed lay behind the Roman Empire. And these visions in Revelation reach their climax in the Battle of Armageddon, where the armies of the beast are defeated by the warrior Jesus Christ. Again, really difficult apocalyptic language to kind of interpret at face value. Just as an aside, um, Armageddon, Armageddon rather, which we, you know, Hollywood is kind of, I mean, we all know movies called Armageddon, right? Do you know that? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it kind of it's a symbolic of uh, destruction and the end of the world, isn't it? So if we could just go back to that map. So Megiddo is a place in the Valley of Jezreel, which basically goes from the Dead Sea Valley out towards the Mediterranean. It's a very strategic place, and there were many battles fa- uh, fought at Megiddo. Ha Megiddo, Ha in um, Hebrew means hill, so it's hill of Megiddo. So Ha Megiddo has been has been morphed into Armageddon in Revelation, but in English, that is. But Har Megiddo was the place that the author of Revelation was referring to. And it was a place of many battles. And the author of Revelation says, and there's going to be this final battle, and it's in it's a place called Har Megiddo that we've, trans- we've kind of morphed into Armageddon. It's not, you know, it's basically just the final battle, basically. And he's taking a place synonymous with battles and saying there will be one final battle between good and evil, and the, and the victor will be Jesus. This is what Revelation is saying. And at the end of the letter, what we call at the end of the letter we call Revelation, the author indicates that he believes that Jesus will return soon. This is at 96 AD. The author of Revelation is saying Jesus is going to return. So this idea is still prevalent in their in their time. Yet Paul's died, and probably quite a few of those people who expected Jesus to return in their lifetime has died. Now, the second letter of Peter, which is many scholars see as the last document in the New Testament to be written in terms of chronology, expect, acknowledges rather that the second coming hasn't occurred as expected. So turn me to 2 Peter 3, verse 3 to 4. Above all, above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming? He promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the, be- the beginning of creation. They will say, when it, where is this coming that he promised? In other words, where is the second coming? Ever since our ancestors died, everything keeps going as it has done since the beginning of creation. The author of 2 Peter then says, there's a reason why this is. There's a reason why Jesus hasn't returned. 2 Peter 3.8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. His words are evidence of a hope disappointed. Jesus did not return as many had expected him to in their lifetimes. Even the Apostle Paul changes his tone towards the end of his life. In the early letters, like 1 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians, Paul indicates that he may well be alive at the time of the return of Jesus. Whereas by the time he wrote 2 Corinthians, he'd recognise that he might well die before Jesus returns. I hope disappointed. Can't you imagine how disappointed Paul would have felt? And I think some, in some ways, what we see in Paul's letters is a bit of a, a transition from this immediacy of Jesus is going to return. Like, don't worry about any issues. Like, 
you, you, you left-wing kind of social people, don't worry about kind of reforming society because Jesus is going to return. And it's not that you're wrong, and, and slavery is wrong, and women are equal with men. I mean, Paul says all this stuff, but he doesn't act on it. Even the letter to Philemon, which is about slavery, is, oh, you know, just be a good slave. But in, later in his letters, what we see is Paul starting to say, actually, and, and some, would even, some scholars would even argue that some of the letters at the end of, towards the end of Paul's life aren't even written by Paul, but they're written by people, people around him, like Ephesians and Colossians, and possibly, possibly um, Philemon. But what we're seeing here is a transition where Paul imme- expected the immediate return of Jesus and then started to realise it's not going to happen before he dies. And the writer to Peter kind of makes that clear as well, that actually there's a reason. Actually, what we call a day is actually more like a thousand years to God, so therefore it could happen in a thousand years, two thousand years, three thousand years. So what does this mean? Does it mean that the early followers of Jesus got it wrong? Well, perhaps they did. And that's okay. But perhaps they did. They even acknowledged it. But, as I've described already, attitudes about the second coming do change from the earliest documents of the New Testament to the end of the New Testament. But we need to remember that the concept of resurrection wasn't even a Christian concept. It was a Jewish concept. Only that there was a big important difference. The Jews believed, and they still believe, that there will be a resurrection at the end of all time, and it will be a one-time resurrection where everyone will rise from the dead. Everyone. And, And so this idea of resurrection was central to all of the apostles and to Jesus. But the resurrection that they anticipated was more than resuscitation. I've said this before. Resuscitation is where you, you take a defibrillization device and you stick it on the chest of someone that's had a heart attack and you restore their heart rate and they are resuscitated. They're the same person, exactly the same body, exactly the same person, and their heart start, you resuscitate them, they're now back alive again. We call that resuscitation, not resurrection. Am I right? Yeah? So... That's not what the Jews believed in. They didn't believe in resuscitation. They believed in resurrection. Now, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, remember, he's a Jew. He's a really smart Jew. He's called a Pharisee. And he says, but it's straining at the borders of language, piling metaphor upon metaphor. He says that the physical body is to the resurrection body like a seed is to the full-grown plant. So think about how a sunflower seed is different from a sunflower, Okay. The plant is the potential of the seed fully realised. And Paul says our resurrection being will be the potential of our existing being realised. Think of that. It's you, but better. All of us, if we fulfil our potential, that's what the resurrection looks like. So you resurrected, is you like, still you, but all of your potential realised. All that God has put inside you fully realised. That's what resurrection you looks like. That's what Paul's saying here. But again, it's all metaphoric. He's struggling to describe it. None of us can describe it. Paul's struggling to describe it, but he uses that, that metaphor. It's like the seed in a plant. Now, the resurrection of Jesus would have posed a theological problem for Paul because as a Pharisaical Jew, he believed in the resurrection of the dead, one time, one place, for all people. But the resurrection of Jesus kind of screws his theology up. And this is where we need to understand that when Paul had his Damascus Road experience, his theology as a Jew was shifted and changed because he encountered the resurrected Jesus. 
the sunflower, not the seed. Not just a resuscitated Jesus, a resurrected Jesus. And listen to my talk on resurrection to hear more about that. So was it possible that Paul's theology changed because of his encounter with Jesus? I think the answer to that is yes. And we see that. I'll just give you a little example just to finish here. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, 23, he says this. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits. We know what that is, right? You get an orchard. The first apples are the first fruits. And then a few weeks later, the rest of the orchard goes and becomes ripe. And, and Paul says, like, Jesus is like the first fruit. It's kind of like the first crop. And then the crops, will, the, the majority of the crop will follow. So what he's trying to say is that there's two resurrections. There's the resurrection of Jesus, and then there's the resurrection of everyone else. So he says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. All, all will be made alive, Paul says. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. So, Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's ascended into heaven. He's, that's, a, that's a metaphor for him having all power and authority. In other words, he's Yahweh. That's what Paul's saying. And then at some point in the future, everyone else will be raised from the dead as well. But what does that look like? Well, you come here to church today to find out the answers, haven't you? I'm really sorry, I don't know. I have no idea. And I'm sure you don't either. The reality is we just don't know. And I don't think Paul knew either. And I don't think all the Bible scholars that have ever lived knew either. But most of the Jews in Jesus' day devised uh, ways of talking about the state of continued existence from Jesus' resurrection to his return. And Jesus, Jesus says this on the cross. He's talking to one of the men being crucified next to him and he says this. You probably know this quite well. Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, paradise could be anything, couldn't it? Let's face it. What's paradise for you is not necessarily paradise for me. So what on earth does that mean? Well, it reflects the Jewish belief that paradise was like a temporary place of rest as each person waits for the collective resurrection. Paul repeatedly talked about those who've died being asleep, awaiting their resurrection. A day, if a day is like a thousand years, then will those who are asleep now, like my dad, be aware of this? I don't know. Does it really matter? Probably not. But Paul says, and it's a metaphor, says they're going to be sleeping peacefully. That sounds nice, doesn't it? Think of your loved ones just peacefully asleep until that day of resurrection. Isn't it fascinating? Like you and I could like make up anything we like about like what's going to happen to us after we die. But as we've looked through the New Testament, we've got quite a good view of what Paul and the early apostles and disciples thought about life beyond death and what would happen. Well, apparently we've, we die, we fall asleep, and then we wait for the great resurrection, which Jesus is going to lead because he's already the first fruits of that resurrection. He's already a sign and symbol of that resurrection because he himself has been resurrected. I wonder how that makes you feel. 
those of us that have lost loved ones and we grieve their loss, is it comforting to know that they're asleep, peacefully asleep, as Paul metaphorizes, describes? Does the hope of the resurrection fill you with hope that one day you, you and I will, will like be resurrected but we'll be like all of our potential realized to be fully ourselves? I don't even know what that looks like. But the gospel of Jesus is one of hope. And if there's one area in our lives that we need hope, it's usually around death. And we don't really think about death very often because it, it kind of, it's like a mine shaft down into our emotional heart, isn't it? It's kind of like, whoa, go straight down to the mic. Oh, God, you're going to touch me where it really matters. And start talking about death. The resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits of everyone's resurrection, which is the gospel of hope. It's the good news. I'm just aware that for all of us, this probably touches on a raw nerve. So why don't we just close our eyes for a moment and remember those who we've lost. And we take comfort from knowing that they sleep peacefully. Peacefully. And that they're waiting for the resurrection. As we will. The fulfillment of our potential as human beings, whatever that looks like. Holy Spirit, would you comfort us with that knowledge? And would you fill us with hope and expectation and meaning? Above all, would you remind us of your unconditional love? There is nothing we can do to make you love us more and there's nothing that we can do to make you love us less. Your unconditional love is wholly dependent on who you are, not on who we are. And we thank you so much for sending Jesus to be the first fruits of the resurrection. Because of Jesus being resurrected, we have a foretaste, if you like, a a foresight of what will happen to all human beings. At some point in the future, we don't know when. <laughs> it probably won't happen in our lifetimes, but it might. We thank you, Holy Spirit. The, the, the hope of the future means that we can have a light touch and a light hold of the present. Not that the present is in any way inferior to what will come, but just a difference, like a seed in a sunflower. We thank you for this reality. And may the reality of the resurrection fill your hearts with hope and joy and expectation and a sense of purpose and meaning in life. And may our hearts be filled with joy um, no matter what we face at the moment, may our hearts be filled with joy. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Because of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Amen.